Hello, Pandemic Parenting Podcast listeners. We're prepping for season two, and I can't wait to share with you what we've got in store. In the meantime, I wanted to share with you an episode of the audio series, Roadmap to Resilience, Supporting Children Experiencing Stress and Trauma. The team at Pandemic Parenting and I had the awesome opportunity to collaborate with Dr. Julian Ford at the University of Connecticut School of Medicine Center for the Treatment of Developmental Trauma Disorders. This episode, specifically for parents, is one of the 16 full-length episodes all about about how we can foster resilience in children. If you enjoy this episode, I encourage you to head over to RoadmapToResilience.org to listen to the full audio series, watch short informational videos, and download our collection of free printable resources. Now, here's episode 14 of Roadmap to Resilience, how parents can foster resilience. This is Roadmap to Resilience, an audio series for professionals and families who are supporting children experiencing stress and trauma. I'm Dr. Julian Ford. And I'm Dr. Amanda Zelahusky. Whether you work with children or you have children of your own, this podcast is for you. Many parents deal with having to help their children learn to cope with stress and trauma throughout their parenting journeys. And this was certainly the case throughout the COVID-19 pandemic, where a lot of us got a crash course in trying to help their children navigate stress for a pretty long period of time. So if you feel like you aren't quite acing parenting through a pandemic just yet, you're definitely not alone. And as a parent myself, there were many days throughout the pandemic that I felt like I was just trying to make it one hour at a time. And that was what inspired me and my colleague, Dr. Lindsay Malloy, to launch an organization and digital resource hub called Pandemic Parenting, where we put out lots of free resources, especially for parents and we have a whole section specifically focused on trauma and resilience. All of these resources are free and you can find them at pandemic-parent.org. It was through this pandemic parenting work that led us to this great collaboration with Dr. Julian Ford and his Center for the Treatment of Developmental Trauma Disorders at the University of Connecticut, as well as the Interorganizational Child Trauma Task Force, which is why we wanted specifically to have an episode focused on parents and how parents can help their children build resilience following a traumatic experience. So we're going to talk to a number of experts who are professionals caring for children and families, and in many cases, parents themselves, or even grandparents like me. And as we do that, I think we're going to see that the challenges of the, of the pandemic have been enormous for parents, and those have just amplified the many other challenges that are involved when a child experiences any kind of trauma. And what we're looking at here is what resources are going to be most helpful for parents when they are providing that crucial support for a child who's seeking that roadmap to resilience. I think one of the important themes that emerged for me throughout this was just often how isolating parenting can be and how alone we sometimes feel and how judged we sometimes feel about whether we're doing it right or wrong. And there's sometimes a lot of shame associated with reaching out for help or acknowledging that you or your children are struggling. So that was why we really wanted to kind of shine a light on how important parents are in this journey um, toward resilience that their children are navigating and how in many cases I've heard you, Julian, talk about 
parents are the medicine for this, are sort of the antidote, but also the medicine in continuing to help their children recover from traumatic experiences, which you talked about in our pandemic parenting episode that you were, um, where you shared so many really important insights. So along that lines of parents being empowered and really an important part of the solution for their kids, rather than blaming themselves, you're going to hear from a number of experts in this discussion about different ways that that can play out. In this episode, we're going to hear from guest experts who will speak to the ways that parents and caregivers can really foster resilience when children have experienced or are experiencing trauma. Up first is Dr. Archana Basu, a clinical psychologist and instructor in the Division of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry at Massachusetts General Hospital, Harvard Medical School. So, you know, I think about health as also being fundamentally intergenerational um, and not just because we get a genetic endowment, um, you know, from our biological sort of parents. I mean, that's definitely one pathway. But I think fundamentally, if we think about the openness to experiences in early childhood, if a parent or the family system is unsafe, unstable, there's violence in the home. There are certainly, you know, implications for parental mental health that, you know, we know are associated with parenting and the parent-child relationship. But we also know that, you know, mental health of parents and mothers in particular um, can influence kind of um, longer term development for babies even and children, you know, beyond that. There are obviously very toxic and harmful direct violence, such as physical abuse or sexual abuse to its children. But for children, I mean, this is true across the lifespan, but this is especially true for children, is stability is incredibly important. I mean, we all benefit from predictability and stability, but children really need this. And so even if we think about issues of housing stability, food insecurity, other elements that are not direct traumas to children, those types of influences that create instability for the family system can still be chronic stressors for children and parents. And of course, parents can do a lot to be the valuable you know, buffers that they often are for children. But I think the main point I wanna say is that they're both direct, but also these indirect uh, influences on family systems that can be uh, really harmful in the, in the chronic sense for kids. Maternal mental health is an example. Uh, it is part of a growing fetus's biological environment. So even in the womb, we know that uh, biological correlates, for example, of uh, certain types of mental health conditions, such as increased inflammation markers, that can impact fetal development. But there's also other pathways in the body. And we know that the biological sort of imprint or um, environment, whether it is through genetics, through these physiological mechanisms, through hormonal and immunological markers, can all play a role. The other thing that I will just also note, and this is also relevant in both the prenatal, but also certainly after um, childbirth, is you know when a child is born, a parent is born. But our expectations of who we're going to be as parents starts also prenatally. 
Um, so there's an emotional and psychological sort of roadmap um, or idea that we bring. It is what we think about in the, in the early childhood and psychology literature. Uh, we call it mental representations of who we're going to be as parents. That is uh, influenced by our own history as parents. That can also play a role um, in thinking about uh, you know, child development at later stages, but really begins prenatally. Um, which is the expectations of who we're going to be as parents and how we're going to parent. I, as a parent, understand this, and I think probably every parent does. When we ask ourselves, how is it possible that I have caused so much harm to my child because I've been stressed, I've been depressed, maybe I've experienced trauma, and, and I know that all those stress hormones were just kicking around in me, as my child was developing. And then when my child was an infant and a toddler, I was on edge, or maybe I, I was struggling with depression, postpartum depression, or maybe there's stress or, or even trauma in the family. So with all that, which can happen in any family and to any, any parent or any child, tell us what is it that parents do that is, is really the help that children need? and that enables children to develop resilience even when their parents are not perfect and their parents' lives are not perfect, as is true for all of us. Right, um, so I think, I think that last bit that you said, which is that, you know, I haven't met a perfect parent and I doubt anyone else has. And we have all, you know, said and done things that we worry about. But it is also true, as you highlight, that we all come with our own legacy of experiences. Sometimes that includes, uh, you know, more pain points and painful, you know, adversities, including all types of trauma. And, and, and I think this is probably well known, but I think, again, it bears repetition is trauma is actually fairly ubiquitous. And I think saying that out loud is important because and you know there are certainly variations across communities and countries, but here in the United States, as an example, the rates of trauma we know, I mean, even by the age of 18, population-based studies show that the exposure to the experience of at least one traumatic event is somewhere upwards of you know, 65%, 75%. And again, trauma, experiencing trauma by itself doesn't mean that we will develop some of these mental health conditions or challenges. But my point in highlighting that was just to say, there is a certain amount of shame and certainly guilt when it comes to parenting and thinking about our own role, what we could have done differently. But the first step is to acknowledge that we are very adaptable, and especially children. You know, even if we do say and do things, and especially now in the pandemic, uh, we all have been under incredible stress and that has certainly affected our parenting relationships. But there are ways, I think, to get help and support. So to that point, I would say, I think educating yourself about, you know, when to seek help is a great place to start. And I think when in doubt, a really good place to start is often your own you know, child's pediatrician or your own primary care provider. So certainly if you're already, you know, if you have access to healthcare and you are connected, that is a great place to start. And, you know, maybe share some of the changes or concerns or observations that make you wonder about it, um, because then you can talk to a professional about, 
do you need more consistent um, care? Do you need a more you know, comprehensive evaluation? Um, and they can certainly help direct you to a mental health professional. So I think that's one sort of very concrete resource, I would say. Um, the second thing I guess I would say is that, you know, there's lots of new ways in which parents are able to use the resources. So information is definitely a powerful thing. So podcasts like this one, but there's tons of websites, there's lots of educational resources. So if you, if you feel like, look, what I really need are some skills that I want to try out on my own, that might be a way to start. But certainly if you're struggling and getting through the day is challenging or you're really concerned about behaviors, certain behaviors or emotional development for your child, I think checking in with a primary care doctor is often incredibly valuable. I think actually one of the most important things and powerful things that we are actually not that great at as caregivers is to get help and support for ourselves. So I think one of the main things that I have learned about myself and, but I always suspected is true and we know this from research and just human experiences. As caregivers, we think about our kids first. We might be caring for elderly parents. We have jobs to keep, but our own health and well-being is often right at the bottom of that priority list. But in fact, supporting kids is about building the resilience of the parents and the consistent caregivers, the people who care for kids, especially for young kids. So responsive relationships build resilience. And for me, that means parents getting their own um, sort of mental health care if they need it, or building practices that support their own well-being is really, really key. So I think that's actually, if there's nothing else we take away from this, I would say parents investing in themselves, even though that's a challenge, is very, very important. When you talk with your pediatrician or primary care doctor, like Dr. Basu suggested, you may get a referral, maybe to another provider or perhaps to a support group, depending on yours and your child's needs. I know that when that's happened for me as a parent, it can feel overwhelming, and I'm not always really sure what that will look like. So here's Dr. Basu again, helping us understand what that might look like and what is meant by a parenting intervention. You do a lot of, of work and training around parenting interventions. Can you talk about what some of those look like? Yeah. Um, so for me, fundamentally, I think that, you know, we call them parenting interventions, but really they're sort of family-based collaborations. And they are, the aim is really to, maybe their skill building is a big part of this, but it really, it is about supporting the relational health in the family, the parent-child relationship as a whole. So part of it is understanding the unique profile of each child their, you know, like you said earlier on, their personality and temperament and figuring out their needs and how we can best put together a team, part of which includes parents, but might include other professionals. So I think a good an important starting place is really understanding the unique needs of a family and their family sort of philosophy and parenting kind of um, culture and philosophy. Um, but in terms of what kinds of formal interventions are available, this is really sort of a spectrum. So some of the work can involve fairly short-term circumscribed work around very specific issues. 
So as a family, um, if you feel like, you know, things are generally going pretty okay, but I've noticed that my child has developed sleep problems and now that's really affecting kind of their mood, their capacity to engage in school, their tiredness, obviously, we might do some focal work around sleep related interventions. So sometimes it can be fairly short term and circumscribed. At other times, it might involve more longer term work um, that might be both individual or group based. So parenting groups is another piece of, I think, work that we are doing and developing um, where I work, where we focus on things like how do you develop and, you know, how do you recognize in the moment? And as a parent, we know it's like, when you're, you yourself are tired and sleep deprived and your child is struggling, that's actually the hardest time to use those skills. Like, how do you recognize your triggers? How do you, you know, you have this information, how do you actually use it in the moment? So developing that skill is part of it. And there are certainly, you know, group-based models for doing that, that focus on, you know, mindfulness skills that help with emotional awareness, uh, emotion regulation skills, um, relationship building through, you know, communication, for example, uh, and then also recognizing what are some signs that tell us that, you know, more comprehensive care that might be needed. And then finally, I guess I would say, I said this before, as parents and caregivers, we have our own histories and our own pain points. Um, and certainly now in the pandemic, you know, mental health needs across the, you know, lifespan have increased. So are there times that we might need, parents might need individual care and treatment? Um, so helping to kind of assess and triage and connect with other professionals. So I guess the one thing I would say to anyone listening to this is therapy doesn't always have to be weekly long-term commitments. It really depends on the needs for your unique family and child. Um, and I think a good starting place is always, you know, to start by talking to a primary care doctor, a mental health professional to determine, you know, what kind of range of short term or longer term work might be needed. You know, I think before children can regulate, we help to co-regulate and that sort of builds on our capacity to regulate ourselves. Um, and so I think thinking about our own histories and our relationship with ourselves, including kind of some of the judgments that come inherent in parental guilt, um, all of that plays a role. And that's why I think, you know, thinking about what our needs are, even though that feels selfish or even maybe contradictory to what our goal is in terms of supporting kids is actually one of the most important starting points. You know, even though I, I, I primarily think of myself as a mental health professional, I am a parent too. And I spent a good deal of time in family therapy as a recipient. And so you might be surprised that many of those mental health professionals that you work with and healthcare professionals of all backgrounds, many of us have actually been on the other side of the couch, so to speak. And we know that providing the kind of support and guidance that helps us to find a pathway when even though we may have all kinds of professional knowledge, as parents, we're just learning and we're just trying to figure it out. And I think what Dr. Basu was letting us know is that this is something that's very individual, but with the respect and the guidance of a, of a helping professional, it's possible to find a pathway to resilience. I know that as a parent, and it's been my privilege to be able to provide that in many cases to children and families who are also on that path to resilience. Next, we're gonna hear from Dr. Michael Salter on practical ways parents can foster resilience for their children. 
and specifically in regards to online spaces, which as we know are a major area of both opportunity, but also potential problems for children and families in this day and age. Dr. Michael Salter is the Scientia Associate Professor of Criminology at the University of New South Wales, and his research is focused on child sexual exploitation and technology-facilitated abuse. I just keep going back to the simultaneous blessing and curse of these things, mm -hmm. right? Like we, we found for a lot of the most vulnerable kids in the last year and a half, you know, kids questioning sexual identity, gender mm -hmm. identity, you know, kids with risky eating behaviors. They, they found these supportive online communities in great ways. And the flip side is that can also be a real risk area, like for people kind of capitalizing on those vulnerabilities. So it's it's really hard to know how best to to guide your kids when they are exploring in gen, you know typically appropriate ways to try to find connection and community, but that's what might actually end up landing them somewhere pretty risky online. And I think you know it's it's an important conversation to have with young people just when something doesn't feel right. You know, we do have that conversation about offline, you know, sexual abuse and exploitation. It doesn't feel right. Somebody stepping over boundaries. Um, and, you know, and young people might often get that sense of that this is unusual, but they might kind of bury it or they might not follow that thought. Um, and again, it's just, you know, it's just encouraging young people to sort of have a sense of appropriate boundaries and even listening to that inner voice that says, what, what is this? And, and, you know, that's an important aspect of online safety, I think. Yeah, and probably those just navigating relationship boundaries, right? Just like you mm -hmm. said, with in offline context, it's it's hard, especially for adolescents to start to navigate, well, who who really is a friend if this person is making demands of me, if they're threatening to not be my friend anymore? You know, some of those things that we're trying to help them figure out and work through to read people, I imagine, would be similar in these online spaces. That's right. I mean, here in Australia, I'm not sure if it's happening as, as, much, uh, as well in the States, but a strong push for sort of respectful relationships education in, in schools um, that sort of integrates, you know, sexual ethics and, and appropriate sexual education as young people age. Um, but, but this conversation about consent and respect and in different kinds of relationships, platonic relationships, romantic relationships, you're absolutely right. You know, sometimes it's, it's hard to know where your boundaries are when your peers are often breaching them in different kinds of ways. So how do we encourage healthy peer relationships? How do we um, instill a good sense of boundaries when it comes to sexual or romantic interactions for, for young people? There's a much broader conversation to have here. Genuine interest is just a wonderful way of describing, I think, how adults should relate to children generally is genuine interest. And it's kind of, it, it's, it's an open-ended um, curiosity at its highest form sort of expresses itself as a kind of a wonder at the child. And that's a place, it's a relational space in which all sorts of things can start to manifest and what's interesting about kids, particularly when it comes to what we call disclosure, when they're starting to talk about things that they find difficult to talk about, is just how carefully they test the waters. Um, you know, sometimes not even the flicker of an eye, you won't know what they're trying to initiate, the process that they're trying to initiate. But kids don't tell you things that they don't think you can handle. And the nice thing about kind of genuine interest is that it creates a milieu in which the child feels confident that you can handle what they want to talk about 
you know, that what they've got to say is not going to be quickly shut down with, you know, too much concern, too much kind of judgment or shame or, or so on. So, you know, I think genuine interest is a very nice way of describing, you know, how a protective family operates, how a protective school operates, how a protective service operates, um, which is always just that openness to the child's sort of inner world, however that world is going to unfold for us. I, I have distant memories of being a child or a teenager, very distant. But the <laughs> memories that I have of adults are those rare individuals who actually seem interested in what I was interested in. Yes. So just to follow along with your point. Yeah, I, I recently came across like a, it was like a list as part of a, a blog or an article that was talking about how to be an easy adult for kids to be around. Mm. And it was just like, as adults, you know, like you were sort of talking about, Michael, we, we come in with our agendas, with our questions, or here's the purpose for my entering this conversation with you. And it was really just sort of encouraging you, whether you're the uncle that hasn't seen that child in a while. Mm -hmm. I mean, the point was, as kids are reintegrating back and, and seeing people they haven't for a long time, it might be hard for them. There might be some social anxiety there. And it was just talking about how these are ways to just be easy, be easy to be around for a kid mm -hmm. instead of coming in with our sort of adult agenda. And, and interrogations. And so in addition to that genuine interest you mentioned, I was just also thinking about we have to create time and space for those interactions to happen. And ironically, in the pandemic, where we've maybe been spending more time than ever with our kids, mm -hmm. it's it's the nature of that time, though. Like, I think about that. I'm always having to multitask and, okay, we're talking about this. I'm helping you with this while I'm clearly distracted doing this other thing versus just going for a walk and being side by side, even in quiet together, that creates the time and space for children to talk about what's on their minds rather than, hey, tell me what's on your mind. Let's talk about everything going wrong in your life right now you know yeah exactly and you have five minutes to do it right <laughs> our discussion with dr salter was in the context of online sexual abuse but so much of what he shared is applicable to many aspects of parenting and caregiving for children i keep coming back to his comment on how we can be easy adults for kids to be around which ties nicely into this next conversation we had with Dr. David Corwin and the ways the parents can create positive childhood experiences. Dr. Corwin is a professor at the University of Utah Pediatrics Department and the immediate past president of the American Professional Society on the Abuse of Children. How important is it for parents who have a child who's experienced adverse child experience, adverse experiences, a, a parent who's concerned about the long-term impact this may have on their child and, and, may, and may feel a, a deep sense of anxiety, but also sadness, even guilt sometimes. How important is it for them to know that they can make a difference because of the positive experiences that they have and still can provide to their child? It's extremely important. A lot of these positive things don't cost anything except time and a little bit of know-how and appreciation that they're so important. Reading to your child, playing with your child, being involved in their life, making sure they're involved in the community and the other activities, modeling. Those things don't cost anything. It's just they take some awareness. Well, and, and they also require people who are healthy enough that they're not all consumed by their own problems. And so, and, and that's, that is the vicious cycle that many people and families are in, where if the parents 
have been so harmed and are so impaired that it impacts how they then raise and interact with their children. You know, there's the vicious cycle. And we hope through treatment and through understanding and awareness that we can begin to interrupt that for more and more people. So for those of you who, like me, are parents and who are listening in, we know that supporting our children on a day-to-day basis is a lot of work. Amanda's commented on that too. So you're listening to two professionals who are parents as well and recognize that this is a major challenge. But the fact that you're finding the time to listen to this episode and recognizing how you are fostering resilience in your children, that is really the take home message from this episode. This is a gift that we as parents have the privilege of providing to our children helping them to find a pathway and a roadmap to resilience. And this is no small thing. So parents, pay attention to the many things that you are doing well. And if this episode has given you some ideas for other things you can do or things you can do differently, take those and use them in whatever way you think would be most helpful. You're the expert, you be the judge. And We're all grateful to be able to work in support with you and all the parents who are helping children find a pathway to resilience after trauma. And to wrap up, here's Karen Zilberstein, a licensed independent clinical social worker and the author of the book, Parents Under Pressure, Struggling to Raise Children in Unequal America. Parents are actually where I've learned the most from and where I can pass off one idea from one parent onto the other and they think, how did you think of that? But it came from somebody else. I mean, parents do well when they use each other. So I know that there was a group of parents who didn't have enough income for summer camp. And they came up with a collective of five and each family did one day a week. They took the five kids one day with this family, one day with that. So Mm. you worked one day and got four days off, which was really, really a good deal for everybody. So ideas like that. Uh, I know a lot of people use their religious organizations for help and support and use other church members and ask for help or just ask to pray with them to find the social support they need that way to call up and say, will you do this with me? You can also try to find natural mentors in the community who can help with the children. And it's especially powerful when, if you have a child with a disability and you can find an older person or a young adult or older person who has a similar disability who can mentor the child, because there is something about the shared experience and seeing that, gee, I can grow up and be like that and be okay. That's really, really important. And here once more with a few final reminders, Dr. Archana Basu. So I think as parents, one of the most instinctive things is we are pretty attuned to what our kids need. We recognize subtle shifts and changes. And I think that is incredibly valuable. And the parenting sort of relationship or the caregiving relationship is also an incredibly powerful motivator. We might not be great at self-care for ourselves, but we're great about making changes often in the service of our kids. And so I think seeking support, maybe sometimes that's a check-in with the pediatrician. You know, should I even be worried about this new behavior or this change that I noticed in my child? So I think the one thing parents are great at are recognize, they know their kids best. And for me, fundamentally, when I work with children and families, I start with the premise that 
parents are the experts on their kids. They know their kids really, really well. And the first step is to understand the child and the parents and their parenting philosophy in collaborating with them. I think we all recognize that, you know, we were not meant to parent in isolation, <laughs> especially of the sort that the pandemic has induced for all of us. This has never, it has never been the, you know, there's no, not a good evolutionary argument for that. It has never been the case in any society. And this is a unique challenge of the pandemic. And even as things shift and change, we're still struggling with a lot of this. So I guess the last thing I would say is, we know this as parents and caregivers that we need support networks. Um, children need parents, but they also need other caregivers. And I think building and rebuilding that village in any way we can is something that we're used to doing and, and or, you know, know the importance of and can get help in doing. Um, so I think these are some of the things that come pretty naturally to parents that we can build on. Amanda, I know that you and the team at Pandemic Parenting have been putting together so many great resources for parents, and it was such a privilege to, to help out with that. But our conversation was just one of many that are so informative for parents, and many of the others I've learned far more from. So I just want to let everyone who's listening to this episode know that Pandemic Parenting is a resource that everyone who's a parent should take advantage of. Can you just remind us how we can get to that resource? Absolutely. So the website is pandemic-parent.org. And one of my favorite things about our website is the little search box on the top. So whatever questions you might have about parenting right now or things that you or your kids are struggling with, probably you're going to find there. So type in whatever those questions are that you're sort of Googling in the middle of the night. And most likely we have a resource there for you, quick bite-sized video videos, um, blogs, tips, infographics, all kinds of things that you'll find there. Everything is free, publicly accessible. Please take advantage of the resources. And if there's a topic that we haven't tackled, also let us know that. It's there for you. And the hope is to just provide you with some support and community to know that you're not alone for all of the reasons that Julian was just talking about, that this is really, really hard work and none of us are doing it perfectly. And even those of us who do this stuff for a living, right? Support families and children in all of these ways, following traumatic experiences or stress, we're navigating it as well. And so we want you to know that you're not alone and that all of these resources are out there for you. Many thanks to our guests in this episode, Dr. Archana Basu, Dr. David Corwin, Dr. Michael Salter, and Karen Silverstein. Visit RoadmapToResilience.org to learn more about our guest experts, access additional videos and resources, or send us a message. If this episode piqued your interest, we'd love for you to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and let us know what you think. And if you imagine this episode would resonate with a colleague or friend, please share it. Roadmap to Resilience is a collaboration between Pandemic Parenting and the University of Connecticut School of Medicine with special thanks to the Interorganizational Child Trauma Task Force. Roadmap to Resilience is produced by my co-host, Dr. Julian Ford, myself, Dr. Amanda Zelahusky, along with Carmen Vincent and Victoria Bruick. Many thanks to Jennifer Valentine for her strategic support and to the teams at Pandemic Parenting and the Center for the Treatment of Developmental Trauma Disorders for providing promotional support. We'd also like to thank the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration's National Child Traumatic Stress Network for their financial support of this project. Thank you for joining us in supporting children in need of a roadmap to resilience.